picking up right where we left off last week, <coughs> continuing a message entitled, Imitating God. Paul has told us that God expects us to walk in love because he has commanded us to walk in love. And why is that important? Because aside from the fact that God is telling us to do it, he deserves to be obeyed, consider this. Jesus said that the world would know who were his disciples because of how much knowledge they have. Right? Because they can lay down the mic-dropping tweets. They know how to silence someone in an argument, right? That's, that's how you know who a real Christian is, right? Now I'm getting a couple head nods, so it looks like I need to change my notes. Jesus said, the world would know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And love is the foremost it is the first mentioned of the fruit of the Spirit. And I, I would say perhaps that's perhaps so because it, it, love encapsulates so many other qualities and so many other attributes. It's not this thing that just exists in isolation to other benevolent attitudes and expression. Love is the embodiment. <coughs> it is the heart of the law. You could summarize all of the law by saying love God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might and all your strength and love your neighbor as you already love yourself. If you love God and if you love your neighbor, the whole law is folded up inside that. Furthermore, Scripture tells us God is love. He is love perfected. And so to be <coughs> reminded that this is what we are that, that this is what is expected of us to be told to walk in love this is no small thing. One other consideration is that it is love is the heartbeat of the Christian life. And someone may say, "Well, I thought faith was. Faith is crucial, faith is vital. So is hope." But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, that love is greater than those things. I mean, faith and hope involve trusting in what you do not see. There is coming a day where we are not going to walk by faith anymore. We're going to walk by sight. And millions of years, generations upon generations after we have laid faith and hope aside, we will still be practicing and enjoying love. So we are to walk in love. Love is to characterize our life. That is the Christian's practice. Walk in love. Now we look at the Christian's pattern. Paul says just a few words into verse 2, just as, and he's, he's drawing a comparison here, just as, Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. The way we are to walk in love toward one another ought to look something like the manner in which Christ walked in love toward us. 
Love ought to be the reoccurring theme of our life. It ought to be the single most prevalent mark upon us, if for no other reason, although there are plenty, I just gave you like five, if for no other reason than the fact that the one who has saved us, the one who has called us, the one who has bidden us to come and to be his disciple and to to sit at his feet and to, to learn from him and to walk in his footsteps, he walked in love. For no other reason, we are to we are to walk in love and to love others because Christ has loved us. Now, Paul has not only drawn our attention to the ultimate figure of love, that is the the God who is love manifested in a garb of human flesh so that love might become tangible and relatable he doesn't just draw us to the God-man who is love incarnated, but he ushers us towards the ultimate expression of love. He leads us to the ultimate figure of love and then furthermore leads us to the ultimate expression that that ultimate figure of love did so that it can be dangled before the eyes of our heart and become the standard upon which you and I pattern our love after. Now in the 90s, a young boy who aspired to play professional basketball and who, who wanted to become you know, more than just mediocre, more than just okay, he wanted to be great, he wanted to excel at his passion. I would guarantee you, more than anybody else, he more than likely had a picture of Michael Jordan on his wall. And every day as he wakes up, who's the first thing he sees? Michael Jordan. And at night, before he turns the light off, what's the last thing he sees? Michael Jordan. And every time he saw that poster, every time he saw Mike, it was a reminder that he wants to be like Mike. And I had to use Michael Jordan because I have no idea who the big guy is today. But I can, I can, Michael Jordan was so prevalent that even a non-sportsy person like me knows he was the real deal when it came to basketball. Now, I said I didn't want to rush through this bit of text because I think it is our, for our benefit that we slow down and we think carefully and soberly as we come to the interceding high priestly work of our Lord Jesus Christ where we tread this morning is holy ground. So let's take our minds to the actual and literal holy ground as we consider the temple. The temple had several layers, several boundaries, several lines, each one more restrictive than the previous. And as one approached the temple, as one entered the temple grounds, there was the, 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 uh, the first boundary was a line that Jews could pass, but Gentiles could not. And then beyond that, as you approach the, the epicenter, as you approach the temple proper, then there was a line that women could not pass. And then there was a line that nobody but priests could pass. And then finally, there was a final 
boundary. It was a massive, incredibly massive, thick veil which nobody could pass except for one person. And even then, he could only pass it but once a year. This chamber to which this privileged, highly privileged man could enter but once a year was the innermost sanctum of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And it was called that because it was where God's manifested presence resided in the days of the Old Covenant. And this man who was permitted to only enter but once a year did so on the Day of Atonement. You've perhaps heard of Yom Kippur. And even then... (coughs) I mean, it wasn't easy. He didn't just stroll into the Holy of Holies. Even then, he, had, he could only enter after first making atonement for himself. As an intermediary for his people, he first had to become acceptable in the presence of God. And so he first made propitiation. He made an offering for his own sins first making himself clean, making himself holy. And then and only then could he, in in that state, could he go into the Holy of Holies to intercede on behalf of the people and make atonement for their sins. And so he literally, as he did this, he literally was treading on holy ground. And so as we read about Jesus offering himself up for us and for our sins, it is so important i plead with you to grasp something of the seriousness and the holiness and the gravitas of of this of this situation of this environment of this uh, event and action that we're reading about and that that we should be of sober spirit because we are indeed treading on holy ground here we're about to discuss the most holy display of love, of holy and perfect love, not only uh, as the actions of a high priest, but as, as Hebrews says, the, the great high priest. He is a great high priest in a category, in a class of his own. What, what he is about to do is not something that has been repeated before and again and again and again. In fact, Hebrews tells us that what Christ did, he did once never to be repeated. What he did, he did in a manner and capacity that we just can't fathom and it's hard for us to relate to. But this is the climax of the purpose of God. Christ's work for his people, Christ's work of atoning for the sins of his people and bearing their sins and expiating it, uh, of, of getting rid of, of their sins, of dealing with their sins, paying for it, discharging the claim that sin had over their lives, the the penalty of sin that hung over their consciences, and taking it all all away so that they may rightfully and functionally and practically be His people. This is central to the purpose of God. Peter the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20 that as this precious Lamb of God whose veins were filled with 
precious blood that would be spilled to redeem the people of God as that precious Lamb of God. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Before God created the world, in, his, in the mind of God, in the plan and purpose of God, Christ was already set apart. It was already determined that the Lord Jesus Christ would be the means of reconciling and restoring a fallen world. And you can read a little more about that reconciliation that even, even creation is anticipating in Romans 8. Romans 8 says that the, cre- <laughs> the creation even groans in anticipation of the, of, of the adoption of, as a son. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is, this is vitally central to the plan of God. The world, one man says it this way, the world exists so that the love of God might be displayed through the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything, everything exists. The world has been fabricated so that the love of God in Christ might be on display. The crosswork of Christ is indeed a most holy and perfect display of love, love befitting a most holy and perfect God. Now, this wasn't just a love that was generally displayed towards the world and, and, and maybe God was hoping that, that, some, that someone would have the sense to latch onto it and receive it for himself. No, Paul says... Christ loved you. Christ loved you when he went to the cross. Every single one of his people were on his mind as he suffered, bled, and died and gave up his life. Yes, he gave himself up for you. Jesus didn't do what he did for some abstract group of of nameless, faceless individuals. He knew precisely who he was suffering for, who he was dying for. He knew precisely for whom his blood was being shed and for whom his body was being broken. He did it for you. He gave himself up for you. And what is so remarkable is that He didn't send his love to you as a typical sovereign, as a typical ruler uh, would do so. He didn't send his love for you. He didn't exercise his love for his people from some remote distant throne where a, a typical sovereign, a typical king might send out his servants or send out his ambassadors, or more often, uh, more likely, send out his armies to do the dirty work for him while he stays at home behind the, 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 the uh, structured and <coughs> artificed walls, enjoying the pleasures of royalty undisturbed. No, Jesus loved his people, and he loved you, and his love for you manifested in action. His love for you manifested in decisive, selfless, giving, benevolent action. 
that had a requirement of him. It required him to lay aside his robes of deity and instead adorn himself with the slave's, slave's apron of humanity, of human flesh, so that his interceding love might, as to use the terminology that we used last week, put us in a better state so that we might benefit from his actions. He loved you. And here's what Paul has to say about the supreme love of Jesus Christ. There's three, three points to hang our hats on this morning. The first is that the love of Christ was a selfless love. It was a selfless love. Paul says he loved you and gave himself up. He gave himself up. This word, paradidomy, can mean just that. It can mean to, to give something over, to hand over, to entrust, to, to deliver something over to someone. In Matthew 25, 20, it's used of the parable of the talents, where the master gives uh, hands over or entrusts five talents to one slave, two talents to the, to the second slave, and then one talent to yet another slave. And the, both the first and the second say, in essence, you know, Master, you entrusted this five or this two talents to me. You put these talents into my care. You put this in my hands. You gave this over to me. And so the word can mean, to, uh, can be used to, to describe committing or entrusting things over to someone else. But this is interesting. It's also used to describe the committing or entrusting of people into the care or charge or possession of someone else. And in those cases, it's perhaps better translated to be handed or to be delivered over. We see this in Mark 9.31. He was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered, paradidomied, into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Mark 10.33, Behold, (coughs) we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And here's the word again, they will hand him over to the Gentiles. Jesus is being tossed around like a rag doll, being put into the possession of this person, who in turn put him into the possession of this person, and again and again. When used of a person, this word (coughs) typically implies someone is being given over irrespective of what they want. Whatever they want, what's good for them, isn't taken into consideration. Their will, their desires, who cares? (coughs) And when used in this sense, uh, specifically when the being given over or handed over is really against any notion of self-interest, it's translated as it is in Mark 14:41. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed. Same word. Handed over, delivered over, betrayed. 
into the hand of sinners. And every, well, not, not every month. Sometimes I read from Matthew 26, but I'd say half the time when we do communion, I read from 1 Corinthians 11.23, where Paul says, The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, paradidomied, handed over irrespective of what he wanted, irrespective of self. So just with, with that in your mind of, of the range of this word, consider again, Jesus paradidomied himself. He gave himself up. He delivered himself. He committed himself into the care of others. And where was his, where was his sense of self? Where was his sense of, 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 of his own desires? They weren't in the picture. When he chose what to do with his life, his personal interests didn't matter. His concerns were not centered on what he wanted. How, how he would be impacted didn't keep him away from doing the work he committed himself to doing. When it came to his own prerogatives, and his own desires, when it came to himself, Jesus Christ is the ultimate and chief example of denying self. You could even say, using that last range of words, he betrayed himself. It sounds weird in the English, but the purpose of taking you through that was just to give you the uh, an idea of what was going on. He betrayed himself, as it were. Remember his prayer in the garden when he was so worked up over his fasting approaching hour, which was practically knocking at the door, perhaps minutes away, and he prayed <coughs> with, with, with tears, and he's on his knees Father, take this cup away. Remove this suffering from me. I don't want it. But you know what? What I want isn't important. You want these people saved. I want these people saved. And even though I dread the thought of going through this, which, you, which was undeniable, his stress was so great that the capillaries in his forehead burst and he's, he's sweating drops of blood. Even though he dreaded the thought of going through this, he did. For your sake. For the sake of others, not for the sake of self. And that's precisely why Paul uses the Lord Jesus as the supreme example of, of <coughs> humility and selflessness in Philippians 2, 5-9. Paul describes that Jesus was in, he says he was in the form of God. The stuff that made God what he is made Jesus what he is because Jesus is God. And as God, he has the prerogative of judgment. He has the right to, to make the calls and to call the shots. He has the right to say what is. He has the right 
to execute judgment. And he and and here it is. He who had the prerogative, he who had the right and the authority of being judge over us and over you chose to lay those rights and privileges entitled to him aside. And he stepped down. He stepped down, we could say, a a cosmic staircase. And as you proceed through Philippians 2, 5-9, you see that there are many flights on this cosmic staircase that he descends from, from deity, which Paul tells us wasn't something that he felt was robbery, that's an interesting word. It has the idea of being afraid to let go of something for fear of losing it. Anyone who has a child knows, uh, has experience with the, with the game of tug-of-war when it's time to put something away and they don't want to put that something away and they don't give it to you. They are considering that thing robbery. Jesus didn't consider his his right to be acknowledged, his right to execute his divine prerogatives. He didn't consider that something that he had to clutch onto, and if he, if he let go, he would lose it forever. He didn't think about his rights that way. And so he, he descended. He descended in condescension from that state to humanity. And not that he, it's not that he ceased being God. He added humanity to himself. Which maybe you think, Aaron, that's kind of weird. It's not really, he's not really giving anything up. Well, imagine a CEO uh, uh, adding to his list of tasks working on the assembly line for a day. That would be a condescension for him. And so he descends, as it were, without ceasing to be God, he, he descends, he condescends from deity to humanity, and from there he descends yet again, another staircase, and he walks down into servanthood. He who was born king of the Jews, he who was born worthy of being served, worthy of being honored, worthy of being obeyed, chose instead to serve. Mark 10.45 tells us that. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And he descends yet again, another flight of stairs that he descends down. (laughs) Not just a servant, but a servant who serves to the point of death. And from there, he, he descends yet again. Not just any death would do. Not a death from exhaustion. Not a death from old age. Not a death from being poor. But the, a descension to the lowliest, most agonizing, most shameful, most humiliating and painful and dehumanizing death possible Roman crucifixion. Many flights of stairs, many levels of condescension our Lord took. 
because his love drove him too. That is selfless love. That was directed towards people like you and me. I affirm what Paul says in Philippians 2.5. Have this attitude. The attitude he just goes on to describe. The attitude that, he, that, that is behind the imperatives of the preceding verses. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ's love arose out of his humility and lowliness of mind and an utter disregard for himself. You and I ought to love like that. He gave himself up. Church, you and I need to be people. We need to be a people who give ourselves up like our Lord. We need to be a people who hand ourselves utter, uh, over and have an utter disregard for our own sense of privilege and entitlement. So that, purpose clause, I mean, we're not just humble for the sake of being humble. humble humility <coughs> paves the way to loving service. We need to have this attitude so that we might love others as the Lord himself loved us his love was a and it still is a selfless love secondly his love and i didn't know whether to call this an interceding love but that's not really a word we use in everyday vernacular unless you're a lawyer so we could also say his love was a burden bearing love Pick whichever one you want. Oh, I put it interceding up there. Okay, we'll pick that one. Christ Jesus loved us and gave himself up, says Paul, for us. He handed himself over for our sake. He did it for his people, for us. For you and for me. The Lord substituted himself for his people. The master, how, how incredible this is. The master taking his place of his servants and making an exchange. Mark 10.45 also goes on to say that the Son of Man came not to be served, even though he deserves it fully. <clears throat> he came not to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom as an exchange, as a substitution for the many. The judgment that should have fallen upon me and upon you instead fell upon His broad and mighty shoulders. And your burdens He bore. Your transgressions he bore. Your sins, your offenses were placed onto Him. Your penalty, your sentence, your judgment. First Peter 2.24 says, 
he himself bore in his body on the tree. (coughs) He took your place. He interceded for you. That's the ramification. That's the consequence of him giving himself up. Sometimes we, you know, we, we want to be nice and we want to we want to be charitable and we, 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 we agree to do something to help somebody without knowing what the ramifications are. And there are times where I've volunteered to do something. I've volunteered my, my, my time, my energy, my truck or whatever. I volunteered to help somebody. You know, there are a number of side jobs that, I, that I've done or just flat, flat out volunteering. You know what? I find out as I'm doing it or perhaps at the end or at some point, I find out that, you know what, this is going to take a lot longer to get the job done. I did not not, uh, uh, assess this rightly. I wasn't thinking rightly. And there are times where I underestimate how much time, how much effort completing the job is going to take. There are times I find out, you know what, I am not even qualified to be doing this work. I should not be doing this. I I might even be incapable of completing it. And there's a woman in the second row very much agreeing with me right now. Sometimes I regret committing myself to certain tasks. Jesus Christ knew precisely what it was going to cost him. Jesus wasn't caught unaware. Jesus wasn't surprised. Jesus didn't say in his heart, Oh boy, what did I get myself into? If I had only known. Now he knew precisely what it was going to cost him. The drops of sweaty blood tell us that much. The fact that he even told his disciples again and again and again what was going to happen told us that he knew precisely <coughs> precisely what was going to happen. The fact that he knew Scripture, the fact that he knew Isaiah 53, told us he knew precisely what was going to happen. Again, First Peter tells us he was foreknown as the Lamb of God before the foundation of the world. He knew what was going to happen for a long time before it happened. He knew precisely what was in store for him. Great and terrible Wrath, divine wrath, anger, judgment for sins, being in in a way that, again, this is holy ground. And so I, I, I say with a spirit of sobriety because I don't know what this feels like, but being separated being relationally, in some sense, separated from the Father and having the face of one who he has enjoyed infinite bliss and infinite divine intimacy with since eternity past, to have that face go from an approving, affectionate smile to an angry, grimacing scowl. That, how, how that must have hurt 
our Lord. How that must have been a heavy burden that we can't fathom. How must it have, how, how must it, much it must have hurt him and strained him to endure that, but endure that he did so that you wouldn't have to. He gave himself up for you. He, his love prompted and pushed and drove him to intercede for you. How can we not give ourselves up for one another? And maybe someone's thinking, Aaron, Aaron, if you only knew how much Lucy drives me crazy. If you only knew how, how, <coughs> how uh, I have to be careful to pick a name that is an ambiguous name to not insinuate anybody. If you only knew how Nathan irritates me, so-and-so doesn't deserve my time. So-and-so doesn't deserve my attention, my sacrifice. This selflessness <coughs> that you're calling me to do, they don't deserve that. They're not worthy of that. It doesn't matter. Romans 5, 6 says this. While we, and this, you're in there, I'm in there, while we were still helpless, and that word can be uh, weak or inept, incapable, while we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We, we were ungodly, and furthermore, we were completely inept. We were helpless. We were too weak and incapable to do anything about it and to change the status of our ungodliness. And yet, he died for us. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, not wonderful people, not paragons of virtue, not people on the cover of GQ magazine, not cream of the crop kind of people. We were sinners. We were utterly unworthy of being loved. We were undeserving of being loved. And yet God loved us and demonstrated that love for us. In that, while we were in that state, Christ died for us. And so, beloved, imitate your God and walk in love towards others. Intercede for others. Give yourself for the sake of others in Christ-like love. Even when, I would say even especially when they are undeserving and unworthy and sinful. Because Christ died for you when you were in that state towards Him. Even when everything tells you 
they are not only disinclined to return that love, even when they are disinclined to be good towards you in return, but even when they are incapable of being good or returning said love to you. Christ died for us and was the manifestation of God's love for us while we were inept. That's the pattern. And so we should be loving towards others even when they are inept towards us. That's that. That's so hard. I I know I know the the desire to see some kind of return for loving someone, for investing someone. It's hard for me even to drop the to, to sometimes to drop a tip in if if the person is turned around. I want them to. There, there's a part of me I want them to know I dropped a tip. That's why you drop. The coin way up here so they hear the ka-chink. Exactly. We like to be seen for our good works. We like to be seen for our love for others. But let me ask you, when was the last time that you loved selfishly like this where there were no earthly rewards, there was no accolades, no returned favors, no love given as a response, no thank you, no gratitude, but you just did it anyway. With the only one seeing was your heavenly Father in heaven who sees what is done in secret. When was the last time you loved like that? Maybe it was this morning. And if so, good job. Maybe for some of us, for me, maybe it's been a while and we need to work at this. His love was selfless. His love was burden-bearing or interceding. Lastly, Christ's love was a satisfying. It was a, it was a um, uh, how did I write it? Pleasing. It was pleasing to God. It was a God-satisfying love. I changed my outline a little bit, so forgive me. He gave, <laughs> he loved us, he gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now again and again, the book of Leviticus describes several of the offerings and the sacrifices as as being a soothing aroma to the Lord. Specifically, in Leviticus 1, there's the burnt offering. In Leviticus 2, there's the meal offering. And in Leviticus 3 and 4, there's the peace offering. And I think 9 or 10 or 11 times, you can find that phrase scattered in those chapters uh, that is a soothing aroma to the Lord. Now, Does God have a stomach such that he needs food? Yes or no? Mandy's like, I don't think so, but Aaron has given us trick questions before. Does God have a stomach such that he needs food? No. Does God have nostrils or a nose with which he can smell things? No. No. Scripture uses 
uh, this, this liter, uh, 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 tool of literature called an anthropomorphism. Say that with me now. Anthropomorphism. And scripture uses this tool again and again to attribute human-like faculties and human-like senses to God so that we can grasp something uh, of, of God's transcendent nature, right? Okay, and so what we are to sense, what we are to grasp is this. No, God doesn't find any particular aroma uh, pleasing or displeasing, but he does find satisfaction in certain things. He does find pleasure in certain things, and it, <coughs> those things are things that are done in accordance with his will. In the same way that uh, that 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 uh, uh, I might, or you might, we might uh, see a, a uh, hear a sizzling steak on the on the Barbie, or some really juicy succulent hamburgers. We're approaching lunch, so I can be a little cruel to you. In the same way that you, you hear that sizzle and you walk, and you walk. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's going to be so good. I'm, I'm our, I got to get that goodness in me. In the same way that that is pleasing to our senses, offerings made in faith, or uh, orders being carried out, ceremonies and procedures be, being carried out and executed in accordance to God's instruction and in compliance with what He required men to do, that pleased Him. It brought him pleasure when, when God got what he deserved from the hearts of men, demonstrated through the faithful and obedient actions of men, that pleases God. And David said as much in, in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, he says, You're not pleased with, delight, uh, with, with burnt offerings, nor do you delight in... Uh, I wrote that really small... You're not pleased with burnt offerings or delight in burnt offerings. There's another word in there that I missed. He says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite and broken heart. A heart, what God is looking for is not the carcass of an animal being done uh, being carried out to the letter, God is pleased with the heart that understands and agrees with why that carcass had to be offered up. Uh, with a heart that understands why a life had to be taken, why blood had to be spilled. A heart that understands and believes and agrees and complies with the Word of God. That is what pleases God. When God gets what he deserves, not just from the hands of men, but from the hearts of men, demonstrated through their actions, through their faithful, believing, trusting actions, that pleases God. That satisfies God. That is a pleasing, soothing aroma in his non-existing nostrils, which he doesn't have. 
God says, it's as if God, oh, that's good. That is so good. I like that. Now, for some people, this, 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 is, this is awkward. This is, this is displeasing to think about. But I'll just say it plainly. The death of Christ pleased God. The suffering, the bleeding, the dying, and the death of Christ pleased God. Isaiah 53.10 The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Is that a little, is that startling? It pleased, it, the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to cause him to suffer, to cause him to be quenched out and to be grieved. One of the best things you can do when you read uh, passages that are startling or awkward or, or even offensive is to not just look at it in an isolated vacuum, but re- go on, read the passage. Then the very next line, let, let, let me read uh, what I just read and then follow through the next line. The Lord was pleased to crush him and put him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. God wasn't pleased with the crushing of Christ because he just likes crushing. Death of Christ pleased God because God saw it for what it was. It was the law's righteous penalty for sin being satisfied. It was sin being absolved. It was sin being dealt with, repealed, taken away. just as the scapegoat would flee from the assembly, from the congregation of Israel out into the wilderness, as it were, carrying the people's sin with them, never to be seen again, gone. The Lord was pleased with the death of Christ because it was the grounds of reconciliation being established. And it was, it was God dealing with our sin in such a way that He could demonstrate to the world that He is two things. That He is perfectly just, for, for in the death of Christ, sin's penalty is paid. And nobody could say that God graded so-and-so. God graded Daniel on a curve. God was more lenient with Daniel. He didn't take all of Daniel's sins into account where He held so-and-so And he really held so-and-so under scrutiny. No, nobody could say that God graded anybody on a curve or that God tipped the scales or that God in any way winked at sin. Nobody could ever accuse God of, of letting that one slide or that one off the hook. That's what that is what corrupt and unjust authorities do. Corrupt and unjust authorities play fast and loose with the law. The fact that Christ had to suffer and die proves that God does not play fast and loose with his righteousness. And so it it, it demonstrates to the world God is perfectly just. His scales are 
irrefutably just and right. That's, that's one thing that the death of Christ demonstrates and why it was pleasing to God. That is, his justice is being upheld. But there's another thing that is being on display, and that is his perfect mercy. Perfect mercy with Christ being slain for sin in the place of sinners. Sinners might have their sins forgiven in him. And so nobody could say, God doesn't have a heart. God has no pity. God has no compassion. Of course he has pity and compassion. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weak and weary, and I will give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the cross of Christ, God's justice and mercy are on display. And it pleased Him to display His attributes. But beyond all that, the Father saw this. He saw the perfect, faithful, obedient, trusting heart of His beloved Son. He saw His Son do the work given to Him to do. And He saw His Son do that work wholeheartedly. He saw Jesus put His all into it. We, we read last week in Hebrews 3 that Christ, <laughs> that He was faithful to Him who appointed Him. Hebrews 3, 2. A little later on, I think verse 4, just as Moses was faithful in the Lord's house as a servant, Christ was faithful in the Lord's house as a son. God the Father saw the faithful, obedient, trusting, diligent compliance of his son as he did the most excruciating work possible and as the son completed that work as jesus said it is finished and every jot and tittle was done nothing left to do every last sin of his people paid for taking their place in judgment, taking their sin upon Himself, giving them His righteousness, perfecting them to the uttermost. Hebrews 10.4 says, By one offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Father saw that in the death of Christ. All of that in the death of Christ as it was offered up and it pleased Him. It was a fragrant aroma. Philippians 4.18 uses this same term. And Paul there helps us out. He, defi- he, he, he defines it. It's a, it was acceptable. It was well-pleasing to his divine senses. Father saw the death of Christ. And it was a beautiful thing. And he liked it. Because of what it accomplished. Now here's... Here's how this applies to us. And this is so crucial to get right. Christ is, is being set forth here. His, his cross work is being set forth here as a model and as a pattern for us walking in love. 
And what Paul has just described about the atoning death of Christ being acceptable, being well-pleasing to God, I don't know about you, but I don't think that's something you and I can reciprocate. Right? Bethany is like, right. Right. We, that's, this is holy ground. This is the holy of holies. Nobody but the, but the great high priest treads there. You and I can't offer up our lives in exchange for the sins of others like Christ. But here's what we can do. We can walk in compliant faithfulness like Christ. We can walk in faithful, trusting selfless compliance to the call, to the call of God upon our lives like Christ as Romans 12:1 says we can offer ourselves up and present ourselves as a living and as a holy sacrifice as our spiritual worship worship which he even says right there is acceptable to God pleasing to God Here's here's another consideration. God isn't pleased with us in and of ourselves. There's maybe some sappy songs and sappy sentiments that you've heard throughout the years. I hate to break it to you. God is not pleased with you as you are. And left to himself, Aaron is not pleasing to God. God sees everything that is in Aaron's heart. God sees everything that Aaron does, things that you don't see. And and left to himself, God isn't pleased with what he sees in Aaron. But the good news is that Aaron is not in Aaron anymore. Aaron is in Christ. With whom... Scripture tells us God is well pleased with. Because Aaron is in Christ, God is pleased with Aaron. And mark this, and this this applies to every single one of you in Christ. It brings pleasure to him as, as Aaron, as Bethany, as Stephen, as Alina, as Daniel, as Russell, as, as we are brought into greater conformity in the likeness of His Son, that pleases our Heavenly Father. We can bring pleasure to our Father and we can bless Him as His Son Jesus did by being like Jesus because that's, that's the prerogative of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit is consumed with doing right now. We read that this morning, Colossians 3, verse 9 or 10. We are being renewed every day according to the image of the one who created us. And you know who's doing that? The Holy Spirit. We can bless God by being loving and selfless and giving and by being patient and long-suffering and by bearing others' burdens, by regarding others' needs as more important than our own, and, any, and by doing any and every quality of love that we have covered in the last two weeks. And you know what? Those qualities, every single one, can be readily found in Jesus Christ. And as we walk like Him, as we walk in Him, 
we bring pleasure and sweet satisfaction to our God. Sweet satisfaction which he deserves to the uttermost. Isaac Watts once wrote, were the whole realm of nature mine. That, that's an offering far too small. Love so amazing. And, and when I say those words, remember what Paul has, descri- has described Christ's love to be towards you. Love so amazing. Love so divine. Love so selfless. So humble. So otherly oriented. So burden bearing and interceding and perfect and satisfactory in the eyes of God. Love so amazing. So demi- divine demands my soul, my life, and my all. Let's pray. Lord, we adore you. You are so lovely. You are lovelier than we can ever fathom. We will be discovering the depths and the magnitude of your amazing love for generations to come in heaven. Help us to grasp something more of your love from day to day. Help us to learn of your love and help us to walk in your love. We have to confess that we are not as we ought to be. Help us to deny ourselves. Help us to walk in the Spirit, to walk in His power. Lord, please conform us, conform me to the greater image (coughs) of You. Help us to love, help us to walk like You did. Amen.